2: What's up, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology Podcast. Today, I am super excited because we have another Australian guest on the show. We have Ben Kant, who will be joining in, also from Melbourne. So, Benny, welcome to the show, man. Mate, thanks for having me. I appreciate the re- the late notice reschedule. <laughs> (laughs) Nah, no worries, man. No worries. Maybe, Benny, do you want to maybe start out with? I often like to get to know the guests a little bit better and let them share a little bit about their journey, but maybe do you want to explain, like, how did you get into health optimization and and a little bit about your background?
0: Yeah, for sure. I started a degree in, a double degree in biochemistry and psychology in the year 2000 at Swinburne University here in Melbourne. And I was always science driven in school. I. Throughout that degree, I you know had some health issues uh, that I couldn't resolve through like a lot of the mainstream medical model. I was in a in an accident in my late teens, basically. So whilst I was whilst I was, I actually ended up doing biochemistry with the chemistry major. Dropped the psychology, which is funny now that I eventually ended up in coaching, where I do more behaviour than biochemistry. But nonetheless, I, I dropped the psychology to focus on the chemistry because I, I wanted to be like something like in forensics or CSI and, and things like that. So. <laughs> Those were the days back in the early 2000s, but nonetheless, I was still trying to resolve some of my own issues, and it wasn't until I actually got into exercise fitness, which wasn't until my early to mid-20s, really, that I started researching supplements and vitamins and nutrition, which, contrary to... The belief when people hear about a biochemistry degree, I'm like, look, if you look at a biochemistry textbook from the early 2000s, you won't see a vitamin in it. <laughs> You'll see a lot of pathways uh, and such, but you won't see a lot of the cofactors that are involved with nutrition. So that really opened up my eyes in, in the sense of, I felt like there was a, like, a world that I'd missed in the four years of my degree that I'm like, how could this be missing out of what I was learning? You know what I mean? And I know actually when we had you on our podcast, how we talked about your experience with your course and your frustrations, some of that pain that drove you to do what you do now. So I feel like in a way that really spurred me to look into nutrition much greater than what I touched on in a tertiary education sense. But in doing so, I really resolved some of the issues I was having around like the cognitive problems and fatigue and such, and at a like a really quick outcomes that I was achieving. So that really spurred me into health as a field I worked briefly in a laboratory working on a dental laboratory actually making tooth whiteners and amalgams and products for dentists but I I, I, despite the field that it was and the opportunities that were there I by that time I'd really been bitten with the health optimization stuff I'd been bitten I I gave that job away and I actually went worked in supplement shops for a little while and that exposed me to a whole bunch of different practitioners So I didn't know about practitioners back then. I didn't know about naturopaths or nutritionists or dietitians. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get um, in with a set of very good practitioners and learn about their experiences, their expertise, their modalities. And that just further opened up my eyes to knowing that this was going to be something that I wanted to pursue. And it really evolved from there. I got deep into the world of supplements and involved in a little bit of production and things like that. A lot of the teaching and education side of supplements and then eventually as we became a more digital world, that kind of led into an online coaching presence, and then that kind of developed into the, my business as it stands today, which is consulting, teaching, coaching, and that basically gets us up to scratch.
2: Yeah, awesome. I'd love to dive deeper into the, the traumatic brain injury that you had and some of the symptoms, and like, how did you go about actually like addressing those symptoms, and what were some of your you know, action steps to sort of overcome that?
0: It happened in a hockey game, actually, in, I think I was in about year 10. So I would have been about 16 years old. And it's, yeah, knocked unconscious. Basically, my nose was shifted out the other side of my eye. So my my nose basically exploded upon contact. And so a big gaping hole in the middle of my face with my nose in a million bits on the other side of my uh, my cheek. So it was pretty traumatic. When they brought me into the hospital, they thought it was a a car crash. That's what they thought had happened um, because it was a pretty severe injury to come off a sporting field. But look, I don't remember much of it. Obviously, I I was out, I was young and I had amnesia for the six months following. So I had no idea uh, who my friends were. I had no idea what had happened in the prior six months. Apparently, I was asking for friends of when I was four or five years of uh, of age. I went from being on the honour roll at at Scott's Secondary School, which is when you're in the top three, top four of the year, you're looking at medicine and wanting to go on to do something like that. Uh, I went from that to having to relearn English. So I couldn't read English. When I went back to school, I had no idea what they were writing on the board. I thought they were writing Japanese. A lot of it's left to my mother retelling these events, because this is going back 20 plus years for me now. So I don't have a great recollection of it, but I was on a great academic sports scholarship with that school. And part of that was really keeping those obligations of sport and academic results. And those academic results really flew out the window in year 11 and 12, which was very hard for my parents, but also like my health was like very important to them as well. But they were also watching a lot of work that went through my education, just seeing is is our kid going to come back to, to normal? And I really struggled. I struggled with chronic fatigue. I struggled with fibromyalgia, glandular fever. So I got like a whole triad of cognitive and fatigue issues. And then I was lucky enough to scrape through <laughs> after a couple of years of trying and falling asleep in class. And my teachers watched and, and this and just said it's just. It's hard to watch what he was and and like how he I limped through that last couple of years and just got myself into a, a biochem psych double. And even the first couple of years of uni, I was still really struggling with these symptoms. Like it was horrible. And I did the worst thing that you could do is I turned to alcohol on the weekends. I was a country kid who went to university in a city. So it was very much a cliche, right, of New, new circle. I'm in the big smoke. So there's like a lot of clubs and things like that. And I didn't do t- too well, as you can imagine, in my first couple of years with my grades. If you combine the, the health history component with some of the things that I was seeking to just get through this, it wasn't doing myself any favours. But I got about, it was about two years in where I realised, oh, i got to pull my act together here. Otherwise, I'm not going to pass this course. Mm. And that was part of me going, I'm missing something here and I've got to take some personal responsibility and ownership over it because I'm not getting any answers or assistance from the mainstream medical model.
2: And was that like at the point where you started diving deep and doing your own research in your own time and just learning, just copious amounts of learning, like self-learning?
0: Yeah, when when the bug bit, it came with like a... It came with an attitude with it, I would say. And so, like when I started to grasp some of these things and concepts, I would try to bring it up in in school, in lectures and things like that. And like most of my lecturers were uh, more along the lines of like pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. So they weren't really interested in a lot of the stuff that I was trying to talk about and waste the class time with discussions on vitamins and cofactors and things like that. So, uh, but I really couldn't let it go. And despite Despite me probably infuriating some of my lecturers, I also had, let's face it, I I was training by then, I was getting a bit of a physical presence to me. There wasn't exactly a lot of guys running around in my biochemistry (laughs) class who trained. (laughs) So I feel like for the one time in my life, I was the cool kid because I'd never established that kind of reputation in high school. The Jack's nerd. The Jack nerd that was just annoying, exactly. So I wrote it, and that kind of became a little bit of my persona in the back end of my degree, if you like. And it, look, it was all fun and games in the end. I think I was just a bit of a thorn in uh, a few teachers' backsides. But they could understand that there was good intentions behind where I was at and that it was probably more outside of the course curriculum that I was going to find their answers. Yeah. But yeah, like once bitten, that definitely sent me off onto that journey of discovery by myself. And that's when people say, I've had people ask me, can I give them advice around education and courses and stuff like that? And, and I'll say, look, I don't really think you should be doing a biochemistry degree. Like based on what you're looking at, if you think that's the pivotal part of my career in terms of development wise, I would say otherwise. Mm. I think there are far better opportunities now in order to get that information, even and assimilate that information in a more customized and effective manner than going and sitting in a class for biochemistry when really the way that you're going to use that information is more perhaps in a clinical setting
2: anyway. Yeah really important points there because obviously a lot of the education that we see nowadays like in, in universities is very much it's outdated and so now that we have tools like AI and other research methods and modalities and things like that it just makes it so much easier for the everyday person to dive deep on these topics so what I'm curious to learn about Benny is what made you get into like the obsession or like the greater understanding around omega threes in general?
0: Yeah, that didn't come into a little bit later. And I was thinking that because I knew you were going to ask me that for this podcast. I'm like, why am I such a prick yeah. when it comes to omega threes? So I would have to say there was a number of factors. Okay. And I think one of them was, so to go back to that story about t- spending time in supplement stores, Charles Poliquin, who's no longer with us, was a huge force in the fitness industry when it comes to a lot of the ways that we integrate health and nutrition around athletes and, and fitness. Hmm. And one of his—I don't—I've never had uh, done his certifications personally, but when I owned supplement stores, when I was managing them, and when they were corporate stores, one of the things that became more and more commonplace was when trainers that were certified would making these supplement recommendations and. We'd see this, I'm going to have 30 capsules of fish oil a day kind of customer come in over and over. And I was like, where is this coming from? These are massive dosages. But as you can imagine, you're sitting there in a supplement store and you have the cheap bulk 400 cap fish oils for $15. You're sitting in that little tub out the front where you're just hoping like people come past and pick it up because they weren't going to buy anything. But then what you really hope is you get into a conversation with them and say, hey, those aren't the greatest quality fish oils going around. Let me show you something over here that's seven times the price, but it does have better quality and we'll make some money off of it rather than just selling those for, for, for nothing, for no margins. And so that definitely was part of it because prior to that point, my, I suppose my understanding and commitment to like looking into the literature on fish oil was cursory and I felt like it was enough to understand main principles and how that might apply in areas of heart health or inflammation and so on. But that prompted me to do a lot more. I think also around that time, this is when I actually discovered Jack Cruz and his blogs. Jack Cruz, neuroscientist who cut his teeth around the discussions around leptin, when actually this is the time that leptin kind of came onto the scene in a more public sense, but, and uh, cold thermogenesis. I uh, saw the balls guy here. It was all, like, he, Jack's work really did interest me because I was, like, he was putting out these enormous blogs. He was a very big fan of seafood and talking about DHEA, uh, sorry, DHA and EPA. He got me interested in some of the more evolutionary biology aspect of it, like the works of Michael Crawford and um, these aspects of, like, how we... How organisms have basically done everything possible to conserve dha um, in the brain over the evolution of the species Uh, and once you start like putting all of those things together there was a lot more merit I, i figured this is very intriguing on multiple levels here and so that drove me to look at the research it's when i go to pubmed it's on my first things to look at the latest research i reckon i'm looking probably at least once a month i'm like omega-3s and I just want to see the latest research what's going on so that's probably what prompted it there was a very much a component of Charles Pollock and hit the scene and these enormous fish oil supplement doses came in and actually what aggravated me with that let me tell you what aggravated me I just realized was for me we're going into some of the, the, the biochemistry of what an omega-3 is here. These are, these are polyunsaturated fats, meaning they have lots of double bonds and they're very prone to damage. Okay? We call it like oxidation. So if you leave these things out and they're exposed to oxygen and heat and light, uh, they will basically go rancid in a way. The molecular shape has changed and they're you know, no longer going to be in their pristine uh, form. And so we have internally, we have these physiological mechanisms to ensure that we can keep these quite volatile chemicals in check, our antioxidant defense systems and our fat soluble vitamins. And so one of the things with me is I was like, if you're going to take 30 capsules of fish oil per day, how do I know that your internal antioxidant defense systems are going to be sufficient at a level that this isn't going to be causing a higher oxidative stress, like a wear and tear burden on the body then the benefits that we're trying to accrue from this which I didn't really know what Polican was trying to the benefits as such because I never did his certifications but that was like the internal dialogue I was having it also conveniently would give me an upsell I could sell a vitamin E along to these to these clients by the way back in those supplement days but nonetheless that was one of the things that initially concerned me and as time's gone on and I've Absorbed more and more research. My views again have changed on even that as a topic.
2: It's funny what you mentioned before. Once a month, you check on PubMed for articles on omega 3s. If you, I don't even know if you've checked this, but if you just decide to search omega 3 brain or omega 3 liver or omega 3 triglycerides, like how many studies do we see now? Just so much data on omega 3s. You can pretty much find any link with any organ or metabolic pathway in the body now yeah
0: yeah the omega-3 research is is to me it's really interesting okay and it's nutrition research as a whole is it's very murky water you talk to scientists and researchers and research reviewers you like look unlike straight like pharmacy pharmacology if you're doing an intervention with drugs it's like this your subjects can't go to the local health food shop and buy that drug (laughs) Whereas with a fish oil capsule, if you're, doing, if you're doing a randomized controlled trial with fish oil and then the person figures out, bites into that capsule and says, wait a sec, i got the placebo. Yeah. But they're in like a high risk of heart disease. Do you think that person's got like a slight, you know what, I'm not going to be in the placebo <laughs> group. I, you couldn't do that if that was a drug. We well, probably could these days, but it'd be a lot harder, right? <laughs> Furthermore, obviously, these are compounds that are readily available in foods, like fatty fish is our greatest source of omega3, so there's a lot of challenges in doing clean research. and when we talk about some of the disparity of results that you're going to see in the omega3 research, this is some of the, the discussion where the discussion is. there's a lot of heterogeneity between the types of studies that are done, and that, what that means is that it's not all the same, like the dosage is all different the, the durations are all different the formulations that they use are different and when you come to doing these analysis of analysis things like where we look at a whole bunch of studies and we do a systematic review or a meta-analysis of these sometimes the outcome of those we're going well we have to acknowledge the fact that we're looking and we're trying to put all these studies together but they've been set up in so many different ways that it's hard to pull very strong numbers from that that's something it's not and it's not specific to omega-3s this is something that is an issue with a lot of nutrition research
2: Speaking of clean research, no pun intended, I'm actually curious to hear about your thoughts around supplementation versus food sources of omega-3s, whether or not you usually advise people to merge both or it depends on the individual. How do you go about that? So for
0: myself, like a lot of my recommendations would be based around looking at the individual first and foremost. So if... I try and explain to someone, look, we have a blood test that you can do called the omega-3 index, okay, which was developed by Bill Harris and Clemens von Schacky, who are a, a couple of researchers, von Schacky's a cardiologist, who basically saw some of the, some very profound work done by some colleagues of theirs in 95 and early 2000s, where they saw a dramatic drop in the odds ratio, relative risk, Uh, so so your chances of dying from sudden cardiac death, basically. And that prompted them, they sat down and said, you know what, we have the facilities here and the manpower to create a test uh, that can measure someone's uh, omega-3 content. So they developed the omega-3 index, which basically looks at the red blood cell membranes. So your cells have a membrane, and within that membrane, they will store a certain amount of um, omega-3s. So the content of EPA and DHA within those membranes uh, combined is then called the omega three index and it 's expressed as a percentage. They then you know went on to the reason for this as development was to try and ha- ha- give it a uh, utility uh, in a clinical sense as a risk factor okay so if, if you 're going to give something the status of a risk factor, then you also need to say you, you need to give some something for people to aim for okay so what are we aiming for them now? If we look at the average American omega3 index, it may be around that four to five percent mark. Whereas if we look at the Japanese who have lower rates of heart disease and on average live longer, that may be up around the nine to 10 percent mark. When they look at the research, we tend to see this eight percent sweet spot, okay? And eight percent is a nice high reading where when you're looking at things like cardiovascular disease and some of the more and mortality and Alzheimer's and neurogenerative diseases and things that are really important. The subjects with the highest omega-3 index appear to have over and over shown to be a a lower risk for those things. So for myself, if I'm to make recommendations without knowing that test, then it might be like, look, really, if we wanted to get you up over that 8% threshold, you're going to be wanting to consume a minimum of around about a gram of EPA and DHA per day. And that's not... A gram as you'll see it if you're going to use a supplement or something like that. It might be a 1,000 milligram supplement, but there only may be 300 milligrams of the active constituents in that supplement. So you have to look carefully on the back and make sure that we're talking about the EPA plus DHA, not just the supplement as a whole. Now, for me, I do have that bias towards seeing what people are capable of from a nutrition perspective. I want to know the feasibility of how much fatty fish will you commit to eating per week as a steady part of your diet. And for me, that's like part of the art of coaching. It's like, I'm going to take what you say and we're going to be conservative because I don't want you to be reaching. Like when we're talking about fatty fish, what are we talking about? Smash, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, uh, sardines and herring. I don't want to know what you could do on your best week. I want to know what you can do on your worst week because that's really where your commitment's going to be. And so someone might say to me, look, I can have two servings of fatty fish per week. If you can have two servings of fatty fish per week and we talk, say a serving is around about four ounces or 130 grams and each serving is going to have around about 1250 milligrams equivalent of EPA DHA, you're still not going to meet the threshold of what's required to get your omega-3 index over 8% on average. So my advice would normally be, look, I would say probably looking at around about four portions to five portions of fatty fish per week. And if that's not feasible, which for most people in my experience is really not feasible, unless they very much enjoy fish, then my advice would be to support the discrepancy, so the lack of, with your supplementation.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really practical and pragmatic approach to optimizing that sweet spot, as you mentioned, 8% being that sweet spot for the omega-3 index let's get into the nuances around the ratios of epa to dha maybe do you want to explain to my listeners does that really matter how does the ratio of supplements compare to like food sources of um omega-3s
0: yeah so epa and dha different omega-3s okay so they are basically if we look at the omega-3 as a class uh they These are derived from something called alpha-linolenic acid. Okay, so alpha-linolenic acid is an omega-3 that we can then convert into EPA and DHA. Now, when I say we can convert, we can't do it very well. Alpha-linolenic acid is from plant, like native plant material. It's where you'll find it. But if we're really trying to get preformed EPA and DHA, we really have to turn towards the marine food chain. We have to turn towards seafood or algae, fish, crustaceans, And things like that. There have been a number of studies that have looked at the interventions, I suppose you could say, with standalone. Like they're just going to look at putting EPA in or DHA. And there's been mixed results from that. In a standard fish oil preparation, you will tend to see something along the lines of a three to two ratio of EPA to to DHA. In most part, I think that's an okay ratio to use as your base, unless you can find a reason why you'll, you need to skew your intake one way or the other. And one of those reasons may be that you've just done the omega-3 index. So when you do the omega-3 index, it will give you not only your um, total expressed as a percentage of the, the total and, uh, fats within the cell membrane, but it'll give you that breakdown of EPA and DHA. Now, let's say we're uh, talking to a woman who's thinking about falling pregnant. So DHA is incredibly important for for pregnancy. And we now know that even our current regulatory recommendations of 200 milligrams, which are just pulled out of thin air when you look, if you try and look at where they've actually got that number from, it feels like a very unscientific flimsy, we'll just do something rather than actually put in the work and respond in kind with setting an appropriate number. Because the number does appear a lot higher than that to show benefit. But one of the reasons that it's beneficial is that like in pregnancy, higher DHA intake is associated with far better outcomes for something that's very significant in the less developed world. And that is carrying to term. So one of the biggest reasons for mortality in infants is preterm or or early preterm births. So being born under 34 weeks is a very big I think they're still the leading cause of mortality for infants worldwide. Not so much an issue for people like you and myself in a country like Australia, but worldwide it's a very significant problem. Getting When they look at these interventions of supplying adequate DHA, and some of these are done with, say, 500 milligrams, others have been done with more than that, like 800 to 1,000 milligrams of DHA, we see an incredible, incredible abolition of some of these statistics, we're talking about 4% dropping down to 1% and things like that. So that is a huge significant benefit towards some of these areas in regards to pregnancy, for instance.
2: Here's a quick little message to all men listening into today's show. Do you want to double your energy levels, boost motivation, and increase your focus? If so, you may be interested in my epic men's energy program I've recently launched called Limitless. Now, Limitless is an exclusive 12-week program for men who want to go from feeling tired, unmotivated, or burnt out to highly energetic, driven, and focused. Within the program, I will analyze your own unique biology and lay out a fully personalized health protocol so that you can finally unlock peak physical and cognitive performance. Over the 12 weeks, you will have direct access to me to ensure your results as well as the chance to join me live twice a week to ask me anything relating to health protocols and discover cutting-edge men's health info to keep you at the top of your game. Now, spots in this program are extremely limited. So if you're interested in finding out more, make sure you go to bit.ly, that's b i t dot L-Y forward slash limitless program to reserve the next available call to see if you're a good fit. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash limitless program. You'll also find this link in my bio on my Instagram profile and also my YouTube channel. Yeah, this is, there's something else I'd like to bring up and that is in regards to, you mentioned before about Oh, like what would happen if somebody's antioxidant defenses weren't strong enough to cope with the potential oxidation that might occur? As you said, they're very fragile, and they're prone to oxidation. But from my understanding, Benny is that like salmon, for example, because it contains astaxanthin, is a, a superior, is a better way to optimize your omega three index because you're going to be getting the synergistic cofactor astaxanthin that can potentially blunt or block some of the um oxidation that might occur from the omega three so maybe do you want to speak upon that astaxanthin?
0: Your audio just dropped out for about ten seconds, so I'm hoping that I'm going to catch this right we do, you just you just said speak to the factors in the evolutionary package like in the whole foods, maybe we have some kind of intake from a dietary perspective of some of the things that would prevent prevent oxidation of these yes um, yeah i feel like you, you just uh, answered it there in a sense and that's that's correct is that so in 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 our bodies we have these in, in endogenous so internal antioxidant defense systems that do their best to ensure the integrity of these compounds and so does everything in the food chain as well so these antioxidants such as vitamin e and astaxanthin play very important roles in keeping that there for us Surprisingly though, and I don't know if, if you've come across this because like, I only uh, learnt this when I was actually watching some of Bill's, Bill Harris, who's one of the creators of the Omega-3 Index I mentioned before, some of his content where they've actually done a study where they gave deliberately rancid fish oil. What? <laughs> deliberately, yeah, we're talking about proper, leave it on the bench in a beaker.
2: For humans? Fo- oh, four not humans. Sh- two humans?
0: Yeah completely and surprisingly or surprisingly to to me was that they did not see a staggeringly big difference between the outcomes that they were looking at compared to fresh wow. fish oil. So this is one of the things that I, we can look at things very much from a mechanistic standpoint. And that's one of the things that grated me when these guys were coming in saying, I'm going to take thirty capsules of, of low quality fish oil per day. As someone who's all about Quality, and I know I'm talking to someone else who's all about quality. You're like you just got red flags going off and the sirens going. This is, does not sound like a good idea. But we're both we're both looking at the science, and we're going to look at the evidence, and we have to take that into consideration with some of the beliefs that we have. Like how does that stand up in these randomized controlled trials and things like that? So. And, and, and similarly, it's a little bit different, but like one of the concerns people have with a high seafood intake is like their exposure to heavy metals and bioaccumulation of toxins and things like that. So as a general guideline, and I do think that it's a, a good guideline, it's hey, perhaps stick to smaller fish. You know, I'm, I'm a big sardines fan myself, um, but, but people will inevitably get worried about things like the mercury content and stuff. But I'm like, look, when we look when we look at things from an, like an epidemiological standpoint or when we look at things in terms of let's compare f- people that consume very high amounts of fish uh, versus those who consume barely any amounts of fish. Now, it would be fair to assume that those that are eating more fish are probably going to accumulate more of these problems or the problematic compounds with them as well. Despite that, across the board, like with nearly everything that we look at that matters on a cardiovascular, mortality, neurodegenerative um, kind of aspect, we see benefit with high fish intake.
2: Mm.
0: And that's, I don't mean to say that to downplay some of the problems of heavy metals and other toxins. What I mean to say is, and it goes to this consideration around the volatility and the antioxidants keeping up with it as well, is that what we know mechanistically, we have to marry up with what we see on larger timeframes and, um, you know, a- across different types of uh, trials or observations, basically.
2: Um, you, you brought up sardines being a, um, one of your favorite sources of omega-3s. Just thought of your new nickname, Benny, and that's sardines over-sprouted magnesium bread guy. <laughs> 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 oh, mate. Sardines yeah, over-bread guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I know, It's it. It's, it's my daily, bro. It is my daily. It's when, Look, when, when, the, when I do a health form questionnaire for the clients I am going to take on board, they pretty much are so quick to jump into the nutrition section the any foods that you don't like, and they'll st- jump straight to the things that I put up on Instagram way too much, like sardines. Look, not a big fan of sardines. Not a big fan of the beef liver. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you found me through Instagram, obviously.
2: That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Let's go back to the, so obviously we mentioned on some of the dietary sources of omega-3s. What about some of the other clinical applications for omega-3 supplementation? What are some other reasons to suggest high-dose omega-3s? Yeah. Look,
0: you could start this conversation in a lot of places. So I think one of the things that really stands out to me is like the cardiovascular side of things so we we see over and over like these studies when we compare the highest quartiles if we we take the omega-3 index and we divide it into four different types of people from very low status over to very high status when we look at comparing the highest status to the lowest status we see these trends over and over again okay furthermore like when we look at some of these, the great thing about the omega-3 index, the red blood cell omega-3 index, is that it has a very low biological variability. Okay? What that means is it's a very steady marker. It actually has a, like, a tenth the biological variability of highly sensitive C-reactive protein, which is what CRP is, what we look at as an acute look at inflammation, and it has a biological variability of up in the 40% mark. Okay. Red blood cell omega-3 content is a very good marker. It's better than the plasma uh, markers of omega-3 as well, which can fluctuate from a dietary perspective. So if you were to intake some fish ah, oil, kind of fresh, it's going to have a half-life of 5 to 10, 5 to 9 hours. Uh, and then over time, that half-life will be extended to 2 to 3 days as you're more regular with your intake of fish oil. But realistically, the uh, red blood cell omega-3 index is a proxy uh, it's a lagging measure of your fish intake for the last 120 days, which is the life cycle of your red blood cells. Very similar in terms of looking to blood sugar as when we would consider glycosylated hemoglobin, hemoglobin, HbA1c. Okay, So this is why I like using this as a marker to help guide people with their choices around fish and or fish oil supplement. But look, I know you, you have a great interest in fertility. You have an, a, an awesome education component to like your everything male health and when we look at even the parameters for fertility and fecundity in males with omega-3 content it's it's basically shown over and over again that what's very important if we go back to DHA actually is so around about I think it's 40 to 50 percent of actually maybe 60 percent of the fat content in the membranes of the spermatozoa is DHA Yeah. yeah that's how incredibly important it is When we look at the indices of sperm health, such as count, motility, morphology, and things like that, they'll have a positive correlation with higher DHA status Mm. as well. When we look at fecundity, which is basically a a measure of fertility when you're talking about the time to conceive, we basically see, I think it's a 47% better outcome for those with higher DHA status as compared to those... Sorry, it's more fish frequency. So for those that eat a certain amount of fish per week. I can't remember the exact uh, off the top of my head, but we see like a, a basically nearly a 50% improvement in time to conceive. So wow. these are some very statistically significant outcomes for things that are very close to you and my heart and many of the people that are going to be listening to this. Just recently, like we had some great work come out on the reduction to risk of things like Alzheimer's and cognitive decline and dementia, And I think we can see, I think it's something like, it's almost like a 60% improvement in the lowering of risk towards getting Alzheimer's. It's something like a 20 to 30% improvement from dementia overall. There are many sort of plausible mechanisms by the way that they think that this is happening. But nonetheless, these are staggeringly significant numbers. When you basically consider we're talking about something that's easily achieved through diet that's really quite easily achieved or supported with some supplemental intervention as well. And my thoughts are like I watch the space very closely because what we haven't talked about it just yet, but one of the, the ways in which omega-3s are so good with inflammation for instance is that we have a reservoir of these omega-3s in our body for instance and when we are assaulted with some type of infection or inflammation, we initiate the inflammatory response. That inflammatory response is going to be an aggregation of neutrophils and certain white blood cells to a site, and they'll release all these type of chemicals and cytokines to basically try and deal with the problem. The problem, though, can become that response. Okay? And so in inflammation, if all things goes well, we should have an initiation phase, an acute phase, followed by a resolution phase. And this this inflection point here where we have to go to resolution phase is initiated and instigated in part or mainly by these lipid mediators that we derive from omega-3s. They're called pro-resolving mediators or specialized pro-resolving mediators, protectins, merisans. Now, these are synthesized from the omega-3 content. So we take EPA, we take DHA, We use our certain enzymes within the body to uh, create these pro-resolving mediators. And then these guys come to that area, this swarm of like your good guys going to a site. And they'll basically go, all right, time to pack it up. Stop having so much fun beating all these guys up because you're starting to break everything around here. There's a lot of collateral damage happening. Okay, And so they will do do what's called changing the phenotype of uh these cells meaning they go from i think there's like a button like on these guys shoulders where they're in like raging red kill everything cause damage punch and they come on and go, go oh okay all right everyone hug i mean it's time <laughs> to leave let's go home guys we've all had fun we don't want to tear down the house and so this is one of these ways in which we resolve the infl- inflammatory process and start the healing process and so this is why these omega-3s as a reservoir are very important and I'm very keen on keeping an eye on this pro-resolving mediator research. There are some great scientists doing great work. Charles Serhan is one of them. And I know that there are pharmaceutical companies looking very closely at this because I would be highly surprised if at some time in the near future we don't see pharmaceutical agents that are based on these pro-resolving mediators. The companies will look at creating a novel compound, patenting it, And then getting some of these amazing outcomes and it will change the face of pharmaceutical pharmacology, which really hasn't changed in the last 20 to 30 years. We are still using the same type of anti-inflammatory drugs, which, if anything, provide great symptomatic relief from that purpose alone. Understood. But they will inhibit that resolution phase. Okay, so there is a price to pay. You pay the piper by using those types of drugs in lowering your symptoms but preventing proper resolution now if a company can come in here and create a compound patent that it is possibly going to be part of a solution that changes the game and changes the face of what we now know as inflammatory pharmacology
2: that was going to be my that was going to be my next question was around those pro resolving mediators the pr i think prms or something the acronym
0: yeah yeah sbms or prms
2: yeah so Right now, as it stands, Benny, is there, is, are these available on their own in supplemental form, like right now? Yeah,
0: there are a couple of companies that do them already. Look, as with all things supplements, it's, it's not the best regulated of industry. So you do have to be aware, that are we getting what they say they're getting? Can we be provided with certificates of analysis, third-party certificates of analysis to ensure that what we're getting is work, is what they say it is? The SPM's research is still, it's still coming out as well. There is a, a lot of studies, that are animal model studies, that have shown some great insights, but I think it's still an area where we'd love to see more human data, human research, and see its benefit. But I think what's becoming more obvious is that when we're looking at some of the understanding the mechanisms of actions of, of which omega-3s are in, in work. So, for instance, with depression. Take depression, for instance. You, we can look at depression as what model of depression are you going to? Are we going to buy into here? Are we going to talk about the neurotransmitter model of depression? Are we going to talk about the inflammation model of depression? And so when we look at omega-3s and depression, we do see a significant benefit in cases of uh, alleviating some of these symptoms of depression. Now, we know, for instance, with different um, different research that it, you know, the... Building the omega-3s into the cell membranes changes the fluidity and dynamics of the cell membrane, which allows for these neurotransmitter receptor interactions to potentially become better. We know also, for instance, in rat models that when we give them omega-3, like it can change the amount of in and dopamine's interactions with with its receptor in the prefrontal cortex. So there are multiple ways from a neurotransmitter-based model of depression that we may be seeing benefit. But then we look at the inflammatory side of this conversation as well. Are these omega-3s decreasing TNF-alpha, decreasing IL-6, increasing IL-10, are they basically working to suppress these inflammatory cytokines? They're synthesizing these sort of pro-resolving inflammation cytokines as well. And now we're seeing research with these particular resolvins potentially playing a role, particularly in the brain, at some of these resolution characteristics, which could be benefiting depression as well.
2: Speaking of some other synergistic nutrients as it ties into this, the discussion around brain health and mood and even depression, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the product, Benny, but have you heard of Suvinade?
0: The name sounds familiar, but I, I can't place it.
2: It's a, it's a pretty well-known, over-the-counter, really high-dose omega-3 with B vitamins, and they're using another, I would say, vitamin-like substance called uridine which I'm sure you've heard me talk about, the synergism between uridine and omega-3s for increasing neurite outgrowth, increasing nerve growth factor, improving phosphatidylcholine synthesis is just remarkable. So I definitely think, yeah, we can always... It's important to consider the basics and go back to some of the basic nutrients. Like looking at very high doses of some of these nutrients can be very powerful for brain function yeah and it's it's
0: one of these things that we talked about fertility before the Amiga quant who is the company behind the omega-3 index from from uh, bill harris there they will also now uh, measure for mothers breast milk dha content as well because we know the importance of ensuring that dha supply continues post postpartum and it's now in certain baby formulas and things like that and it's it's Definitely plays a benefit in terms of things like cognitive health. And when we look at studies, even with in children with things like ADHD and those kind of behavioral issues, we see some improvement with dosages of omega 3. I think some of the, the research is anywhere between 800 milligrams to maybe double that, maybe around the 1.6 gram mark. And we see uh, improvement in some of those attention characteristics and focus and things like that as well. So The conversation with omega-3, with brain health, with cognition, with preventing neurodegenerative disorders, it's there from pregnancy through to the elderly. So for me, this is why it is such a prolific issue, like whether it's as broad as like lowering mortality, like having a 20 to 30 percent lower risk of dying just overall through to some really significant improvements in uh, neurogenerative disorders. The research around cardiovascular benefit is grayer. Okay. When we look at some of the bigger trials, like reduce it and vital and strength, they have different outcomes, but a lot of these bigger trials are also looking at composite endpoints. And what that means is that to get a statistically significant outcome, you've got to win in four or five different events. It's like the, uh, what was that thing? Uh, what's, what's it called at the Olympics where you like the decathlon, you can't be just good at one thing. It's like the CrossFit games. You know what I mean? That's what these things are. You can't just go in and be good at one thing. You've got to be good at everything. And so if some of these studies, these bigger studies that are quite rigorous, but you might look at some of the individual characteristics and say, oh, there was less heart attacks by percent." That's a significant outcome. It didn't get relayed in the end result because we were looking at a composite of many things. And because it didn't see improvement in this, that, and the other, it comes across not so significant.
2: So what about, obviously, I think it'd be unfair to forget about the importance of omega-6s and looping that into the discussion obviously we've mentioned you said before that a great or a very large number of a percentage of americans are not getting enough and probably australians are not getting enough omega-3s in their diet and they're probably over consuming the omega-6 rich foods but do is there a nice balance there between omega-3s and omega-6s as well
0: i would say we're still learning on this you know what i mean and because new research comes to light and i'd say it's a very still very dynamic in terms of any kind of strongly held belief that i have with this okay it's no you'd have to be under a rock in the nutrition world to know not know that omega-6s can be quite controversial there's a lot of people saying look we have such a greater dietary intake of these vegetable oils and omega-6 containing oils and is it we know that from a mechanistic standpoint they are the precursor to these more inflammatory prostaglandins that can be part of that inflammatory process and therefore is this part of the problem that we're seeing with obesity and chronic diseases and stuff like that. But when you look at the research and you look at omega-6 intake, nearly overwhelmingly it sides on the positive health outcomes. Okay, so it just does. We know mechanistically perhaps what its potential is or what it's capable of, but when you look at the outcomes, it just doesn't line up well. And I think one of the things that may just be a way of looking at this, I don't think it fully explains it, but I think something to acknowledge with it is this. When you increase your intake of DHA and EPA, you will displace these omega-6 fats and things like that out of the cell membranes. In other words your body at any given opportunity knows how important these particular fats are and it will take them and grab them and it'll get rid of anything else nearly okay it's tier one that's it but the opposite is not true okay so in other words if you just overwhelmingly eat more omega-6 it's just not going to let go of those omega-3s it's not it's tier one man you're not going to go come and take it and so A lot of laboratories that are bringing out these omega-3 tests and they might be looking at it at the omega-3 to 6 ratio, for instance, and then using that as a guideline to say, hey, like you have a very low omega-3 to 6 ratio, or if if you inverse that and they're looking at omega-6 first, they might say, hey, it's too high. You should reduce your omega-6 intake. I don't think it's founded in a lot of solid evidence. I think what's more usable and backed by the evidence as we see it at this point is just to increase your omega-3 intake. okay? Mm. And it's like the conversation on cholesterol. So initially, I think a lot of people were under the impression that omega-3 lowers cholesterol. It does do, and it's indicated medically for lowering triglycerides, and it does do that. But it doesn't really impact cholesterol. And some of the earlier studies that were done on really high doses of omega-3, they did see big drops in cholesterol. And then what they realized afterwards, it was because those oils were displacing saturated fats. And so it was easy to start with to just misinterpret what you saw and say, wow, look at this, omega-3 dropped cholesterol. You could have probably replaced omega-3 with anything because you dropped out all this saturated fat. So it was the absence of something that saw that result rather than your intervention as such. Yeah, that's my perspective on the omega-6. It's just like the omega-6 conversation for me, I'm still very aware of it. And I think that what it does do is it crowds out, but it potentially crowds out omega-3 intake and perhaps by the nature of just the allocation of foods that would come from that is too many of your calories coming from something that aside from omega-6 is pretty nutrient barren and therefore it's just not the healthiest way for you to set up your diet and i would make an argument that i think in a lot of obese populations that probably is the case they should remove some of those foods that are contributing towards that omega-6 because they're also contributing way too many calories that aren't under control
2: Yeah, no, I think you summed that up pretty nicely. And in regards to the actual prescription of omega-3s, for example, or like prescribing them in a clinic or clinical environment or as a nutritionist, for example, do you think that it's possible that we can potentially see a blood thinning effect? Because this is obviously a a, a discussion that gets thrown around quite a lot. Do you think it's possible that we can get a slight blood thinning effect from high-dose omega-3s?
0: Anecdotally, <laughs> I can't believe we've made
2: it an hour without
0: me using an anecdote. Yeah, when I, I busted my eye open actually on, the, on a, a piece of equipment at the gym a couple of weeks back. It was actually right before one of our podcasts. And oh, I didn't realize that I busted my eye because I swung a part of a lever and the handle came around. It was like way too, way too oh, wow. easy and it came around and whacked me in the eye. And anyway, it hurt a lot. So I was like, oh, just head down. You're in the middle of the gym. And I put my head up and I had blood coming all the way down my face. So my blood, I have an omega-3 index of 13%. I don't use any supplements. It's just I have a very high fatty fish intake. My blood, I feel like, is quite thin. (laughs) (laughs) Nonetheless, let's forget about anecdotes. Let's talk about research. What do we know? So the... This is a very common, common uh, thought process, and one of the ways that it comes... So, so what omega-3s will do is it will uh, help with platelet aggregation and, uh, and you know, help prevent clotting and things like that, which are undoubtedly part of this uh, benefit that we're seeing with things like um, you know, cardiovascular and thrombotic events and things like that. We take that knowledge and we know, for instance, when we have blood thinners like warfarin and stuff, we don't want to have that prior to surgeries. Okay, so these pharmacological agents, you'll see everywhere warnings, please do not take this. We don't want to be dealing with any extra bleeding throughout or post-operation. They have done studies where they have front-loaded Omega-3 actually in the hopes of seeing less atrial fibrillation, I think it was, prior to seeing less atrial fibrillation post-op and what they saw in terms of a bleeding perspective was no worsening of the the problem with bleeding. And in fact, they saw less requirement for transfusions. Less. Wow. You know, less requirement for blood transfusions. So the, and I think Bill Harris has said this because he, he, he's been asked this a few times as well. And I think his thought behind it was this. Is, look, the what you do on a day-to-day basis with like your omega-3 is just not relevant you're talking about like the omega-3 reservoir that comes in there over the last three to four months so you stopping your fish oil like a couple of days before an operation he just doesn't think it's going to have any significant benefit uh, sorry change towards this like platelet aggregation and potential issues with influencing bleeding through or post operation
2: that makes sense obviously i used to work in the pharmacy my dad's pharmacy in like i think the old school belief there was like yeah just to be play it safe for customers like i working as a vitamin specialist there i was like all i had to know was a few things like vitamin k2 be careful omega 3s be careful if you're on blood pressure medications maybe don't prescribe too much magnesium things like that but that yeah. totally yeah that makes sense as far as what we see like clinical application i'd be curious to know benny if there are any other like commonly or common myths that you see that people just don't really understand around omega-threes that you see, or you get asked quite a lot by by athletes or bodybuilders and things like that. Are there any other things or areas that you think people are just really confused by when it comes to omega-threes? I think the most
0: common questions when any time that I talk about omega-3 is what's your favorite supplement? You know what I mean? People and this is like one of the aspects of coaching that you realize when you work really closely with people. It's just, it's not necessarily just about what you know, although like we hope as educators that when people know better that they do better, but behavior change is a whole nother beast entirely. And so this is why I said at the start, it's, I want to know for a feasibility analysis of what are you going to commit to on your worst week? Not what you can brag to me about. You can hit for like a home run one, one week running. That's not a great setup. Okay. So People do turn to supplements, and I'm okay with that. I would say, look, I do think it's actually worthwhile investing in something with a great purity, low... And this is some of the benefits of supplements, so we didn't maybe connect these two things before, but just for the sake of tying this together on impurities that you will get through uh, foods, uh, like like fish, is that the companies in the process of their uh, purification can eliminate to a great degree these heavy metals okay and these other uh, compounds they can uh, test for the oxidation values and report those in these certificates of analysis as well you can get a hold of a comparison chart for instance of some of the brands that do make it that should make it at the top of the list for you here and despite my story before about like guzzling down completely oxidized <laughs> <laughs> fish sure, oil i'm not going to be doing that anytime soon you know what i mean so It's analogous to the, you remember when they asked the guy to jug skull the glyphosate when he was saying that it didn't cause cancer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not quite the same, but I still wouldn't be doing that. I would look for quality and I do think it's worth it. I I just think that it's worth people knowing ways that they could increase their fish intake, looking for those opportunities to do. And this is just like a behavioral change thing in coaching and helping people understand like what's a target I can aim for, what's feasible and what's a few ways practically that I could go away and implement that. Mm. Okay? The... The Omega-3 test can be done by yourself. I think that's a really simple thing that I try and convey uh, to people. It's, listen, you don't even need a practitioner. You can go to OmegaQuant. You can uh, buy it. They send it to you. It's a blood prick test. Okay, so you don't have to go give blood for this. It's a blood prick test. You prick your finger. You put it on the paper. You send it back to them in a self-addressed envelope, and then they give you the results. Okay, and then you've got the results back, and this is the great thing about omega-3 is that someone can say hey i've got an omega-3 index of four percent i'm in the lowest quartile that sucks what do i do i'm like it's really easy (laughs) (laughs) it's really easy you don't need a genius right now you don't need to go and get a consultation with anyone you don't definitely don't need to speak to me or anything so it's just we increase our fish intake and then it's just a case you you can actually go to omega-3's website and they have things like calculators for you so if you start with 4% and you want to get to 8%, it'll literally help you figure it out in terms of how much, this is how much omega-3 intake you should get per day to get you there. Now, there is a bit of individual, inter-individual differences here. I will say that. And that's, look, I give generic numbers for the sake of just giving an average of what I think is going to work for people. But there are definitely people who don't uptake these omega-3s well. I can remember because I've seen it personally with clients that have got extremely high fish intakes with surprisingly low omega-3 index. Wow. And I have a couple of thoughts on this, you know, which, you know, like one of my clients, uh, who was this, had, was covered head to toe in tattoos. Mm. Um, and just to draw my line of thinking in there, like one of the things that I think that's going to severely influence your omega-3 status aside from obviously your dietary intake and your capacity to digest and absorb what you're eating, may be the, uh, amount of inflammation that your body is under and constantly trying to resolve and that thought process is built on some of the research around things like autoimmune diseases so let's and things like uh, lupus for instance so when we look at lupus subjects they tend to have extremely low omega-3 indexes okay in spite of when you compare that to the actual fish intakes it just doesn't really stand up to those um, controls that don't have lupus okay so part of what i think is important to acknowledge potentially in the conversation about how much your intake should be is like what's your history like what's your status now but what is the inflammatory load on your body i wouldn't be surprised in future if we see more research that kind of shows that people that are under more systemic burdens do actually have trouble repleting or sustaining a certain omega stat- omega-3 uh, status
2: mm. yeah i think you've i think you've summed up that quite nicely and obviously I'd imagine a lot of my audience would probably be wondering now, like as far as keeping up to date with the latest <laughs> Omega-3 research or wanting to stay at the forefront, um, do you have any good resources for them? Obviously, you post some great content on your Instagram as well, but are there any other updates and things that you can you know, explain to my audience? Yeah, I think the best
0: uh, lay information is probably going to come from I think Rhonda Patrick is a terrific Omega-3 advocate. She has been for many years. Maybe Rhonda might have played a bit of a role in my actual influence. I've got to think about, I actually think that, that would be the case. Because, yeah, she's been putting out great information for such a long time. And when you think about some of her her favorite things, it's saunas and broccoli sprout extracts, sulforaphane and Omega-3s probably, I'm still guessing. <laughs> uh, but I also think that Bill, uh, Megaquants blogs do a pretty good job of summing up some of the significant research in really easy like little blogs designed for the general population not for academics and stuff like that on the other hand if you are an academic go to their site and read some of their published papers so christina jackson who's bill's daughter has published a whole bunch of research as well as bill and they run a podcast i think it's called amiga matters and they interview other academics from around the world or themselves that are publishing recent research and it's very much at a higher tier conversation
2: awesome Great. Well, make sure to leave those linked in the show notes. But yeah, otherwise, Benny, I think my audience will have gained a ton of value and learned so much from this discussion. I know we could probably keep going for for hours on end talking about Omega 3s and Omega 6s and things like that. But let my audience know, Benny, where they can connect with you if they want to connect with you, learn more about your services. Thanks, brother. Look,
0: basically, you just find me on Instagram under Benny Lifts. So you can, all my links are on there to get in, in contact with me, whether it's through coaching or service or some of the education and mentoring courses and things like that. That's probably the best place to find me. We run a podcast called Katabasis, K A T A B A S I S, which you've been a, an awesome <laughs> guest on. So we hit some, you hit some belters out of the park <laughs> on that podcast, actually. Yeah. And now, our, our uh, Donnie, our video guy, definitely just got you looking sharp as on that mate. So I said to him afterwards, I was like, Donnie, the lighting and everything on Lucas just came on point, mate. So yeah, we have a, a podcast there. We and my business partner, Alex and myself, we you know discuss a lot of topics on there and we try to get great guests such as yourself just to highlight some of the, the things that we do, which are mainly around nutrition but also fitness, a lot around women's health. We just had the midwife on that delivered my two boys via home births last week to just really shed light into home births as a topic you know what i mean yeah the podcast and my instagram probably the best place to find me
2: yeah awesome i'll make sure to leave those linked in the show notes but otherwise benny it was a pleasure having you on the show man thanks mate pleasure as always awesome Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology.
0: This has been a No Filter Media production.
1: Say what you want. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better?